Chris Webster here, co-founder of the APN. I just wanted to thank you for supporting archaeological education and outreach. Please share this post across your socials so more can learn about our shared past. On to the episode. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Dirt Podcast is brought to you with support from the Archaeology Division of the American Anthropological Association. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And we've got a sponsored episode for you all today. Many thanks to Amanda for picking out this topic. And thanks. Yeah, thanks. And if you out there want to sponsor an episode on a topic of your choice, um, remember, you could always go to thedirtpod.com, click on news, and click the link that says sponsor an episode. But wait, there's more. It's not just us talking to you today. We've also got a very special guest expert for this episode. So we'll be joined on the show today by Kimberly Moran, who is an associate teaching professor and director of forensics at Rutgers University Camden, and who is closely involved with the discovery slash project that we're going to talk about today. Uh, What's that, listeners? Do you want us to get to the topic of our sponsored episode? Well, (laughs) by all means, let's get to that. So we will start in 2016 when a new condo complex was being built in downtown Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, uh, not too far from where both our guests today and both Anna and I went to college. Um, Hey. hey. Um, And in the words of Jennifer Pinkowski at the New York Times, quote, a backhoe crunched into skeletons and coffins, end quote. Now, before you start thinking that we've taken a hard turn into true crime broadcasting, because let's face it, that's what pays the bills. um, We should say that the grounds upon which these condos were being built was once the cemetery of the First Baptist Church of Philadelphia, which was founded in 1698. The the church, not Philadelphia. Um, (laughs) So on the one hand, bones not surprising. However, according to historical records, the burials in that cemetery were supposedly transferred to another location in 1860. So on the other hand, bones, kind of surprising. Um, (laughs) And I'm going to read another quote from that same New York Times article by Jennifer Mankowski. Um, With grudging permission from the developer, construction was halted whenever a backhoe turned up another body. The researchers mounted a two-week salvage excavation, recovering more than 80 burials. After hitting a stretch of soil that was grave-free, they hoped they'd found all the bodies. They had not. After the visit in June 2017, the researchers dug all summer, eventually discovering another 328 intact burials. So many. That's so many. <laughs> then, the, then the researchers knew they had uncovered the rarest of opportunities, end quote. Um, so nope. most unearthed cemeteries in the United States have been reinterred without analysis. It usually happens in if, say, a church runs out of room on its own burial grounds or if it moves its location for some reason. There's no reason to analyze the remains. It's not an archaeological mystery. It's just moving people and then laying them back to rest somewhere else, possibly where they can rest more peacefully. <laughs> uh, 
But sometimes the record keeping isn't great or records get lost and people go missing. Um, This particular set of burials was also very early in terms of colonial American history. So out of the surprise find came the Arch Street Project, an effort to discover the life stories of these early Philadelphians. So this seems like a great point for us to stop talking and <laughs> to introduce our guest who actually knows stuff about this, Kimberly Moran. So welcome to the show, Kimberly. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. So before we get into the details of the Arch Street Project and the excavations and analyses, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you find yourself a, a forensic archaeologist? Uh, well, so I usually tell people that forensic archaeology was probably the best mistake I ever made. Um, I never had any intention in a million years of doing anything forensic. Um, I remember when I was in college working in the library and my supervisor was really into this new TV show called CSI. She tried <laughs> she tried desperately to get me to watch an episode and I just had no interest. I wanted nothing to do with it. I was not interested in police procedurals or this new forensic thing that suddenly everybody was crazy about. But what happened is like many archeologists, after I graduated college, I worked in CRM for a little while. And that's where I really kind of learned how to, how to actually be on a day-to-day basis an archeologist. And that's where I also mm-hmm. learned how impoverished my life would be if I continued in this field and I didn't mm. get a higher degree. So it became pretty clear pretty quickly that I needed to go back to school and get some some graduate something under my belt. Okay. And the other thing that I realized doing CRM is how easy it is to get kind of pigeonholed, just, you know, specialize in one geographic area, one time period. So I decided I wanted a graduate degree that would give me a skill of some kind, something that, you know, was kind of transferable across different types of archaeology. Um, So I saw a program called Forensic Archaeological Science, which sounded really cool, but I didn't know what it was all about. Like a lot of people, I just associated the term forensic with like dead people. So I thought recently dead. (laughs) I didn't know that. I thought dead people, there's always dead people in archaeology. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So I would be learning kind of burial archaeology and excavation techniques specific to human remains. Oh yeah. Right. Um, And then, yeah, Yeah. I left my whole life behind to go to university college, London in London. And on the very first day I realized I had made this huge mistake that this, these were not the anciently deceased. These were the recent, deceased. Uh-oh. <laughs> but it was the best mistake I ever made because it took my life and my career in a completely unexpected and a very exciting direction. And um, I, I, I thought I was not going to look back to traditional archaeology. I thought my traditional archaeology days were done. And here I was now fully immersed in the world of forensic science um, until um, a project came my way when I returned back to the U.S., in South Jersey, and then especially the Art Street Project. The Art Street Project has really taken me back to traditional archaeological research in a way I could have never anticipated. Awesome. I, I really love when we interview guests and they tell us that their career is based on a series of fortunate mistakes because it makes me feel so much better. Yeah. Because <laughs> I also feel exactly the same way about about my career slash life. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the so, point is, is oh, don't plan too much. Right. Great. That's really great advice that I wish <laughs> I had listened to so many times in my life already. <laughs> yep. 
Um, so as for the First Baptist Church burials, how did you first learn about those? Um, and what was it that really um, in particular interested you about that discovery other than the, you know, straightforward, like, ooh, so many bones. <laughs> like what? <laughs> Apart from that, what was it that, that really um, caught you? Well, <laughs> if I had any idea of what I was getting myself into, I probably would have run a mile in the opposite direction. <laughs> um, I'm a, I'm an avid reader of our local newspaper here in Philadelphia, the Philadelphia Inquirer. Mm -hmm. And I was on the train one day traveling from one job to the next. And I was reading the newspaper and there was an article from November 2016 the title was Old Bones Found and Nobody's in Charge. <laughs> and <laughs> oh, what a title. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the picture, I mean, bones. Okay, I must read more. Um, and the picture on the article was this very unhappy construction man holding this box of what was instantly recognizable as human remains. Um, almost almost oh, exclusively no. <laughs> all, all long bones, femurs and things of that nature. Um, so, so as I read the article... So already a lot of people <laughs> yes, yeah. in that in his box. Like once you have once you have more than at least two femurs, uh, <laughs> yeah. It was, yeah, definitely people. multiple people. So I, I read the article and um you know it goes on to say how you know these bones are being found at this site. Um they don't know why. They checked out with various offices, everybody said, Oh, this has nothing to do with us. And so this poor construction guy is left with a box of bones. And my thought was, well, I would happily take that box of bones off his hands. You know, I could, I, I it would make a nice little research project for one of my students. It's like little box. Just of bones. a little one. Yeah, just a little one. Um, but I knew that if I just called up at the construction site, I would probably look like a crazy person um, <laughs> saying, hey, give me your bones. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I mean, <laughs> worth a shot, I guess. I'm really good friends with the curator of the Muter Museum, Anna Doty. And I thought, yes. well, everybody knows the Muter Museum. So it would look less crazy if she called on my behalf and got those bones. Um, and so that's what she did. Um, and to make kind of a very long story short, we turned up on the site one day. It was, um, I think it was January of 2017. And um, we were presented with what was now a, a pretty overflowing bankers box of bones. <laughs> oh gosh. And <laughs> the first thing that we recognized right away is that there were a lot of sub adults in this collection. Oh, okay. Interesting. So that sparked our curiosity. Um, <laughs> and I think at this point we did realize that this was the site of a former cemetery. Um, mm -hmm. cause we had done a little bit of, of kind of, you know, just very preliminary groundwork before we turned up on the site. Um, so we asked if it was kind of the end of the workday, there weren't any construction workers hanging around. So we asked if we could go down onto the site and see kind of the general location of where they were coming from. Um, so we mm -hmm. took us down kind of begrudgingly. Um, and a lot of that area was kind of covered in water at that time. And he kind of pointed out, but there was really nothing to indicate that there was any kind of burials or organization. Like we didn't see, okay. we saw Certainly, as we were walking down into the site, we kept on randomly seeing fragments of human remains and adding them to our box. We probably added another, oh. you know, five or six people in the process of walking down Yikes. to the site. Um, but again, nothing to indicate what we were getting ourselves into. 
So okay. we said to the construction people at the time, look, you know, we're both very experienced monitoring backhoes. We'd be very happy to kind of just, you know, totally for free, just kind of hang out in case something turns up. And we were kind of politely, you know, thanks, but no thanks and sent us on our way. Um, so, you know, we said, well, you know where to find us. And off we went with our box of bones. And um, I started <laughs> the process of assigning a student and getting them organized. We found that there was a mix of faunal remains as well as human remains. Um, again, a lot of juveniles, almost exclusively long bones. I guess that's what the construction workers could like easily recognize as being bone. Um, and we thought that was it. We thought that was the end. And, and, you know, maybe these were just a few individuals that were missed in the process of reloading, relocating the cemetery. Maybe it was like, I mean, these are all the things that were swirling around in our head. Maybe this was like, uh, an orphan section, like a pauper's bit. And that's why there were so many, um, sub adults, you know, we had kind of all these mm -hmm. hypotheses, but nothing to back them up. Can I, can I ask a quick clarifying question? Yeah. How old is a sub-adult? So below the age of 18? Yeah. I, I mean, like, anywhere between 16 and 18. Okay. Yeah, so, something that's clearly juvenile where there's no fusion of the epiphyses of the, of the long bone. Right. Um, and, the, uh... and really for like femurs, that would be someone pretty, pretty young. I mean, you're looking at like nine and stuff uh, and younger. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because the, the ends of bones fuse at different times throughout a person's life. And so yeah. when you look at what has fused and what has not, you can get a general sense of their age up to a point. Once everything's yeah. fused, it's like, well, they're, they're adults. They're done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're well, they're finished cooking. At, then you're looking at tooth wear and teeth. And yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, so was um, there, mm -hmm. did you have any legal hoops to jump through? to get access to these or were these guys really happy to hand them off? They were yeah. really happy to I, hand them off. This is blowing <laughs> my mind that, that you have con that to work in construction and to just be like, Oh dang, more bones. <laughs> and, and just to like, just to, to deal with that. Cause that's yeah. gotta be like, is that normal for them? I mean, you might not know this. But like, it just seems <laughs> like something that yeah. would be really uncomfortable. It's a really old city though. I mean, yeah. So, so there's a couple of things going on here. I mean, first of all, yes, Philadelphia is really kind of horrible with their historic preservation laws. Um, everything is really kind of written to the benefit of developers and developments because okay. oh, that's a bummer. Yeah. I mean, the city sees this as a way to raise the economic status of the city, to get more people into mm -hmm. the city. And, you know, they've been very successful at that. Philadelphia is definitely kind of up and coming and more and more young people are mm -hmm. moving into the city. It's starting to become mm -hmm. affluent in areas for better or for worse. Um, so that, you know, that's a direct result of how historic preservation is handled in the city. The other thing is that, this was a completely private project. There were no public funds involved. It didn't reside oh. in a historic district. So it really fell okay. into, you know, legal gray area. There, there was nothing that we could really pull on. And kind That's of, kind of lucky though, right? Like nothing that would really kind of hinder your, your analyses. Well, I mean, yes and no. The problem is that the uh, quality of the excavation that took place was pretty terrible. <laughs> Ah. Because we couldn't stop their construction. We we were only there at their pleasure. And if at any mm. point we annoyed them or we weren't going fast enough or anything at all, they could kick us off. Um, okay. The other thing is that the reason why this story got in the newspaper in the first place is that they had actually been finding human remains for a while. 
and nobody was saying anything. Uh. And it was finally a construction worker who was like, hey, this isn't cool. <laughs> I'm not comfortable with throwing away bones because that's, ah. what, that's what was happening is bones were just disappearing from the site. Um, no. And so the construction worker anonymously approached the newspaper and that really kind of began this whole snowball. Okay. So, so yeah, it was, you know, for somebody Ooh. on site, this was not normal to them and they were not okay with it. Mm -hmm. And thankfully they did bring it to the public's attention through the newspaper. Wow. Um, thank, thank goodness for that guy. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so we went away and we thought that was the end of that. And, uh, we, you know, had our bones to our little box of bones to walk, to work on. And still in my office today, I have a box that is labeled the original box of bones. And, you know, <laughs> It has its own special place in my osteology lab. Um, so on February 20th, I was driving back from doing a talk somewhere and I get a text message from Anna saying, have you seen the email? Uh, apparently the site foreman had emailed us both saying that they were that they had started to find a lot more bones and they didn't know what to do. And they would be very grateful if we would come down to the site. So now they were very happy to engage with us, or at least the site manager was happy to engage with us. So we went down and what we found were uh, voids in the wall of the unexcavated soil. And these voids represented coffins that had been kind of hacked through with the backhoe. Oof. And if you looked inside, you could see, you know, the individual kind of laid out in there. Um, again, we, you know, they, they were not in any kind of organized or structured uh, layout. They were really kind of at random through the unexcavated fill. So we thought, again, that these were probably just missed individuals because um, after doing a little more research, we, we thought at the time that we still had a pretty small church and cemetery. We thought maybe 500 people tops. So we thought, okay, well, you know, it's totally reasonable to think, you know, if you're trying to relocate a cemetery, 500 people, you might miss one or two. Right. Um, so again, we, we talked to the site manager and uh, we kind of struck a deal that we could at least monitor the backhoe. You know, we still, there was no way construction was going to halt, um, but we could at least be there. And um, if the backhoe came across human remains, they would stop what they're doing so that we could real quick hand excavate the the individual and, you know, box them up and then you know, <laughs> carry on with the excavation. No, no mapping, no surveying, you know, like right. some pictures with reference points to maybe try to like triangulate out later, but you know, at, at mm -hmm. least they weren't ripping through the coffins. They had, you know, we could, well, <laughs> sort of. <laughs> so, um, so they would only allow myself, Anna, and another colleague of ours, Ani Hatza, who's a forensic anthropologist on site. So the three of us basically had to rearrange all of our lives and our daytime schedules to try to make sure one of us okay. was at the site during working hours every single day. And wow. for the most part, we were pretty successful. There were definitely some times where we just couldn't make it work. I had to teach all day or whatever, and we couldn't get somebody there. On those days, we would come back to the site and the construction workers you know, tried their best. They did their best. Um, but we would come back and we would find trash bags of commingled remains. Mm. So it was really mm. awful. And, you know, when we weren't at the site, certainly Ani and I were 
trying to look up Pennsylvania law, trying to figure out, you know, if there was anything that we could turn to to kind of stop this situation. Um, we kind of anonymously called up the Historic Preservation Office to be like, I have a friend who has a bunch of bones. <laughs> Asking for a friend. <laughs> to try to figure out, you know, what were our options. And everything we tried, we just found there were no options here, that this was really the best that we could do. Um, we tried reaching out to other members of the Philadelphia archaeological scene because, you know, Philadelphia archaeology is not really my bag. It's not really what I do. So I was hoping to reach out to those who were familiar with archaeology to get some guidance or some assistance. And we were usually met with a lot of anger <laughs> at what was going on. Um, one archaeologist told us that we were going to set Philadelphia archaeology back by 30 years. Really? And what? they really put like... The, they put the fear of God in us. We really thought, are we, is like this going to be the end of our careers? <laughs> um, and nobody would help. Nobody would, you know, there were some archaeologists we would talk to. And then the next day we would see them walking above the street, shaking their head at us. Um, well, it was, it was really, I, it was really what? awful. <laughs> that is baffling and infuriating. I'm sorry. Well, and it was just also like, you know, we it, it took any kind of intellectual, I don't want to say pleasure, that's not the right word, but it went from something that we initially saw as, you know, not a great situation, but potentially exciting in terms of the learning that could be produced to right. something that brought us a lot of dread and fear. Yeah, I mean, uh, that shouldn't, oh yeah. man. It was, it was bad. Well, <laughs> well um, I get, I mean, I, I hope that the dread and fear is mostly gone now because now it's evolved into the Arch Street project. So what do you want people to know about what you do with with that? Yeah. And my God, how far you've come. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, things sort of improved in the sense that we were given um, two weeks to do something that resembled archaeology um, and we were able to excavate, you know, like in fairly good contextual terms. Um, 78 individuals during those two weeks. And then, um, as you mentioned in the introduction, uh, another 300 plus were found. And at that point, we were right. able to get <laughs> we were able to get orphans court involved. Orphans court is the court that has jurisdiction on unclaimed human remains, you know, of present mm. or past. Need to gain essential business skills to level up in your career? Then UCR University Extension's Professional Certificate in Heritage Business Management is the program for you. Join the first University of California online business program designed by and for cultural heritage professionals. Enroll early and save. Visit extension.ucr.edu slash APN today. Um, and they Orphan's court? Yes. <laughs> like orphan, kind of like orphan bones, not necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh no. I just, it's not necessarily saying these people were no, I just, like Dickensian I just orphans. That it was like, we deal with like the matters of street urchins and unclaimed bones. <laughs> That's what like we ended that. up with. Okay. Okay. Now, orphan's court actually is where you would go to get a marriage license. I don't know why in the world it's called orphan's court. What? Again, Whoa! Not my thing. <laughs> Philadelphia, what are you doing? One shop. <laughs> but um, so, so the Arch Street project. Yeah. So, so we were able to get the court to actually say to the developer, "Look, you need to you need to handle this the right way 
and they actually handled, they hired a CRM firm to do really what ended up being the bulk of the excavation. And they produced a nice report on what they found um, and, you know, turned over kind of custody of the remains to us to continue with the analysis. So what the Art Street Project has become is a way of trying to get as much information out of this assemblage before they are reinterred in 2023. That date was granted to us by Orphan's Court to allow us to do kind of a really an all singing, all dancing analysis of this material, which again, as you mentioned in the introduction, is really unusual that usually it's all about, you know, getting people out of the ground and back in the ground as quickly as possible. Um, so we uh, are working with bioarchaeologists, with historians, with people in other scientific fields from biology to chemistry um, to, you know, um, epidemiology to just understand who these people are because they weren't buried with really any markers or what, any way to indicate um, their names. So we're trying to, you know, figure out who they are and tell their stories because they clearly have been forgotten for 150 years um, and now they've made, made a big splash. So <laughs> we want to make sure that we do justice by this group um, and that we also make sure that we inter them where they were meant to be uh, relocated to Mount Moriah Cemetery um, right. in 2023. Okay. Um, so you just mentioned that they they weren't buried with any nickname markers or anything to mark their, to identify them. Um, but were there artifacts like where you know here on the dirt we talk about like grave goods and things um, yeah. were there things buried with them are there other artifacts apart from um, human remains and then you also mentioned faunal remains and what did a typical burial look like so or at least was there a typical burial right. or were these sort of all over the place or, or have you been able to determine what typical looks like in this case yeah like from, right from between like what was found before you were able to Folk at, like to do like archaeology <laughs> before archaeology yeah yeah um yeah so what what does what is typical here and what is a burial in these cases so first of all uh this congregation was baptist so they were uh mm-hmm. and they were a baptist congregation that kind of merged with a an offshoot of the quakers there was a bit of a quaker schism oh. at the time and the Keithian Quakers kind of broke off from the main branch of, of Quakers in Philadelphia. And it was the Keithian Quakers that these Baptists kind of, you know, became friends with and started using their meeting house and later on their burial ground. So they really believed in a very, uh, you know, simple and plain burial style. Right. What we tend to find is more or less typical Almost exclusively, all of our coffins are hexagonal in shape with a gabled lid, which means that the lid is kind of pointy upwards, kind of like a little roof almost. Um, But that's about where where kind of typical stops Um, from by hexagonal. You mean like a traditional like a Dracula coffin shape, right? Not like a like a goth kid, like your little like novelty backpack kind of yeah coffin yeah shape. And okay to be honest, because i was briefly picturing an equilateral hexagon and that didn't make no, sense no. That's <laughs> Just, nope yeah i mean it was kind it was kind of weird coffin to see that okay. for the first time to see those kind of like really stereotypical draft dracula type coffins i'd never seen anything like that before <laughs> um and they're also surprisingly narrow 
They are at the, huh. at the foot. I mean, some of them were maybe only eight inches across down by the feet. Really, really narrow. Um, so huh. kind of long and skinny looking Dracula coffins. Uh, Extra creepy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that's kind of where typical ends. So we've done some preliminary wood analysis and we've got all sorts of different types of woods that are represented. Um you know, mahogany for the kind of upper end all the way down oh. to kind of like your softwoods, um, like pine. We have some cedars. We have some, I think, walnuts. Um, they are held together by nails and in some cases screws. That's something I was also very surprised wow. about. I didn't realize huh. how old, you know, screws are in terms of being used as a fastener. Well, and you're like, you really don't yeah. want that coffin coming apart yeah <laughs> well yeah and, and a lot of them were in really great shape um that was kind of our strategy when we only had those two weeks and we had an unknown number of people that we were getting out of there our strategy was to just remove an entire coffin and take it off site and do the the hard excavation at some other point in kind of more controlled circumstances okay. and they held up really well those coffins um that really really was pretty re remarkable uh, um, they sometimes had handles on the side. So a handle at the foot, at the head, on the long end of the hexagon and on the short end of the hexagon. So six handles altogether. Right. Um, and the coffin handle styles also kind of vary greatly. Um, we have some that are very similar to some of the, um, kind of contemporary cemeteries from New York. Uh, from the African-American uh, Baptist Church in Philadelphia, as well as the African-American Cemetery in New York. Um, some that are similar to coffin handles from the UK. And one of the things that uh, got us super excited is that we found a coffin handle catalog, like your Sears catalog for your all of your after-death needs. <laughs> hey! <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's called the Toosby and Cooper catalog and it dates from 1794 and um, a copy of it is available at the Victorian Albert Museum in London. Um, and so Anna happened to be over there anyway for a conference and did some scanning of those pages. Um, there's one coffin handle from Toosby and Cooper that seems to be like their most popular model. Um, we see in a lot of other cemeteries. <laughs> the Cadillac of coffin it, it handles. It really is. Um, it has a Latin inscription that means hope in death. Mm. And uh, we have we have, I think, about three coffins with that handle on it from the Toosby and Cooper catalog. Um, and I believe we have five other coffin handles de designs that turn up in that catalog, which is more than any <laughs> other cemetery. Wow. So, you know, you can talk about, well, what does that mean? I mean, 1794, if you kind of place that in terms of our relationship with Britain at that time, what does it mean hmm. that we have people still buying those wares from the UK. Um, does that mean that they still identify as being more British than being American? Because surely at that time there would be some sort of industry within the cabinet making industry kind of, you know, producing those goods as well. Um, so, you know, these are sorts, these are some of the kind of archaeological interpretations that are yet to come from, um, you know, kind of the, the analyses that we're doing on this assemblage. Um, so again, some of the coffins are not decorated at all. Some of them have, you know, the really nice fancy coffin handles. We've got a very few, like you could probably count on one or two hands, uh, coffins that have other decorative plates on them. Our kind of most famous resident 
has this has quite a lot of decoration and actually has a name, uh, the name of Benjamin Britten. Um, he kind of features on our website and stuff like that. Right. Yeah, I saw that. Not the composer. Right. No. <laughs> but the great thing is that when we do find, you know, the f- very, very few people, again, probably about five that actually have plates with inscriptions with names and dates, they kind of like they kind of act as anchors in time and we can start using them to help us relatively date other individuals. Um, and as we start learning the demographic information of the different burials, then we can start cross-referencing them against the records that we have of the First Baptist Church. So if we have, you know, uh, a female who's between 45 and 55 and, um, you know, we she's buried under Benjamin, so she must have been buried sometime before, I think it's 18, se- or 1782, um, then we can look through those records to see how many women meet, meet that description. And maybe we find mm-hmm. three or four women that meet that description. So we've now, you know, we, we might not be able to say for sure that this is, you know, person A, but we've taken 500 people and we've been able to narrow it down to three or four names. Wow. So that helps us a lot. Sleuthing. Yeah, it really, it is forensic in, in a way. Yeah. Um, was there, did you find a lot of, social stratification. I mean, you mentioned some of these had very fancy coffin handles. Right. So was there, and, also the woods. and the woods are very yeah. different. So yeah, I mean, that's, despite these were Quaker type, so like very simple burials yeah, and stuff, so but yeah, still they're noticeable. Of, they're Baptist kind of quasi Quaker in a way. Um, it's hard to assign, you know, socioeconomic status because we know through the church records that there were individuals that, um, were of a lower socioeconomic status that were essentially sponsored by people that were well-to-do in the church. So somebody who couldn't afford to be buried or couldn't afford a coffin, somebody who was better off in the church would, would buy one for that individual. So we really can't say whether the coffin somebody was buried in was a coffin that they bought themselves or that somebody bought for them. Oh, that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a little more difficult. I mean, one of the things that we can do with socioeconomic status is look at the remains inside and look at the state of the individual. Do they seem to be of good health? Do they have signs of manual labor? And then look at the way in which they're buried and see if there's any kind of correlation between the two. So if we have somebody who right. has you know, very prominent muscle attachments, probably did a lot of heavy lifting, and they're in a very kind of simple coffin with no decoration, then, you know, again, you can maybe come to some kind of conclusion about that person. That's right. But that's kind of, um, I don't know, that's kind of really beautiful to think that, like, in terms of sort of the presentation of of their burial, (laughs) that you can't, you can't tell between, you couldn't necessarily differentiate between the, the individuals that were of greater material means than those who were really lacking altogether in material means. That's kind of nice. Well, yeah, ultimately we are all equal in death. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yep. And so, (laughs) um, so you're talking about like digging into church records and, Mm -hmm. and even like the catalog that your colleague found at the Victoria and Albert museum, um, (laughs) which was so cool. Um, have you been able to gain any sense of, um, the, the lives uh, and the individuals behind these burials that you've analyzed, have, have you gotten to know any of them and sort of what their stories are and, and what their lives were like? 
Yeah, a little bit. Um, and kind of an approach that we're kind of going with as part of the Art Street Project is something that we're calling osteobiographies. Oh, wow. So yeah. Yes. That's kind of our yes, idea yes, yes. of, you know, being able to create a, bi- a biography of a person's life using the skeletal record in combination with the archaeological and historical record. That's one of the things I really love about the Art Street Project is that we don't just do one thing. We're all, all about the collaborative multidisciplinary approach, which I'm realizing more and more is actually pretty rare in not so much in archaeology, but sometimes a bit more rare in some of these other fields. Um, I was talking to our historian and he was, he basically said to me, we don't talk to archaeologists. (laughs) And I was like, well, let's start talking. Like that's kind of the point of this project is to show how we gain so much more when we work together. So in terms of some of the, of the bio, uh, the biographies that we've established so far, uh, we have one individual, um, who, really kind of stands out in my mind, besides Benjamin Britton, I'll come back to Benjamin Britton in a minute. Um, But this one individual, um, I can't remember what G number he is. G just stands for great. So as we were, as we were uncovering the individuals, we just um, numbered them just in a numerical sequence as we found them with G as the prefix. So G1, G2, G3, and so on. So this particular G number um, was found, um, in that two week excavation period. So he's got to be somewhere below 78. He's the only person in the cemetery who was subjected to an autopsy. Hey, fans of archeology, span head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop and click the link to our T public store. You'll find some awesome designs that you can pick up on t-shirts, mugs, and more. From our Ask an Archaeologist series to the worst idea the Life in Ruins podcast ever had, slamming agriculture. I mean, seriously. Again, that's www.arcpodnet.com forward slash shop for some archaeo swag. Chris Webster here to tell you about one of our affiliates, Timeular. That's T-I-M-E-U-L-A-R. Whether you work from home or can go to the office or even to the field, Timeular is an app, and if you want it, a physical device that helps you track your time down to the minute. Have a hard time separating your work-life balance? Set a weekly goal for tracked work hours and stop when you hit that goal. It's right in the app. So support the APN and finally start accurately tracking your time by heading to arcpodnet.com forward slash Timeular. That's arcpodnet.com forward slash Timeular to get on track today. Hey, archaeology fans, Chris Webster here. That last ad and this one were just heard by over 4,000 fans of archaeology and history. Do you have something you'd like to sell them? From job postings to products and services, podcast advertising works. Through our unique hosting service, we can play your ad for a short window of time so your customers aren't hearing something that's old two years from now. We can also make your advertising budget go further because we charge by the download, not by the episode. So if you want 10,000 people to hear your ad, that's what you're going to get. Our system allows us to target countries and zip codes so you get exactly the audience you desire. If you'd like to hear more, contact our advertising manager, Madison, at advertising at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. She's super cool and waiting for your call with a media kit and some sweet, sweet metrics. So that's Madison at advertising at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Remember, podcast advertising works because you're listening to this literally right now. And thanks for not skipping. 
after death. After wait, death. And that's like <laughs> super- so like a 1700s <laughs> autopsy though. But that, I mean, think about it. This is pre 1860. That's really unusual yeah. for someone to yes. have a postmortem yes, examination. Was it suspicious? So yeah, well, that's you know that's kind of a whole nother bit of sleuthing for us to figure out is how in the world that even happened. But as we started to look at him uh, from his skeletal record. He's got a lot of um, anti-mortem injuries. Um, and in particular, he's oh. got two kind of, um, for lack of a better term, like dents in his cranium. And oh, so boy. He had some kind of like traumatic brain injury or traumatic cranial injury that has healed over time. Oh, no. And Ow. in terms of his um, his autopsy, the only thing that was really autopsied was his cranium. He didn't have, you know. You know, his, um, you know, traditionally in autopsy, they, they kind of cut through the rib cage to examine all the internal organs. And that was not done to him. It was just uh, his cranium that, um, that you know, you could see the saw marks was kind of sawed open and well, presumably, to, presumably to examine the brain. Okay. Right. So our, our thought is, um, you know, the nature of his injuries suggests that he had a pretty bad accident. Either he fell from a pretty great height or he was hit kind of by, I don't know, a carriage or some sort of moving object at a great speed. Right. Okay. And something thought, that would have inflicted a lot of blood yeah. force trauma. Yes. And he's got, he's got, a, he's again, he's got a lot of broken bones down one particular side of his body that, that has Oof. healed, but have healed in lots of weird and weird ways. Okay. Oh, this poor guy. And so this, is, um, this is someone he, who was like permanently disabled by yeah. something that happened to them. That's, yeah. but it, it looks as though he lived for quite some time. He lived to kind of a ripe old age. Um, well, that's so good. Our, our kind of thought about this guy is it, it possibly he was institutionalized um, mm. because those would be the individuals that, you know, would then be used for medical research um, or his traumatic cranial injury could have resulted in some sort of like personality change. And so at right. death. They wanted to kind of take a look at the brain and see what was going on there. And hence the removal of the brain to kind of check it out. Um, right. He became kind of a, a medical curiosity. Yeah. Yeah. Particularly, again, particularly if he was institutionalized mm-hmm. um, for whatever, you know, kind of changes happened to him as a result of his injury. So he's one that really stands out as having a really interesting story. And there's still way more for us to learn about him. That's just from his his skeleton. There's still more that we're testing in terms of, you know, looking at DNA, looking at um, dental calculus at his plaque um, and various other, other things that we're sampling. Um, Mm -hmm. Benjamin Britton, also very interesting. Uh, He was a very tall fellow, so tall that he had an extra set of ribs and an extra vertebra. What? Wow. (laughs) That's super (laughs) rare. That's so rare. So yeah, big guy. Um, also appears to have some sort of injury to the right side of his body, his shoulder in particular. Um, and he has this pipe tooth, uh-huh. which for listeners, if you know what pipe tooth is, it's where you clench onto your pipe uh, in the same location that you eventually yep. wear a groove into your teeth to hold that pipe. Um, and his yeah. pipe tooth is on the left-hand side of his mouth. So, mm-hmm. again, we think maybe because of his shoulder injury, he started to uh, favor that side and started, you know, maybe using his left hand a bit more, hence the, the pipe tooth on the left hand side of his of his body. Um, 
but yeah, another, another interesting guy with an interesting story. We so, got to try to link to a photo of pipe tooth. Cause it is marked yeah, the, the groove. I've, it's not like a slight groove. Yeah. It is. It's like a little straw hole. It's one of those yeah. things that you read about and you're like, oh, okay. Okay. And then you see it and you're like, yep. That's what that is. That that sure is what that is. And his isn't super pronounced. It's, you know, it's, it's only very slight. Um, So whether he took up smoking later in life or again, whether he was used to holding his pipe a different way until he had his injury. Oh yeah. You know, there are different things. Um, So yeah. So those are, those are some stories. Uh, We have some, um, some women in our collection that clearly did a lot of heavy physical labor that just have these amazing muscle attachments on their, on their forearms. Um, really washer women. Yeah, probably, probably. Um, and then, you know, we have lots and lots and lots of children as well. Um, Mm -hmm. It feels like there's more children than probably there is. Um, the reason why I say that is because when the CRM firm came to do the excavations, um, they kind of changed up the methodology a little bit uh, because at that point, the hole in the ground was just so very, very deep. The excavation really was because they were putting in a two-story parking garage underneath of the condo unit. And that's mm-hmm. why all this material was disturbed was because of parking. So instead of removing coffins intact, it would, that would have been very difficult because they would have had to hoist these very heavy coffins kind of up all this way to get them to ground level. Right. So the CRM archeologists were kind of hand excavating all the adult coffins, but then all the children and infants, they were removing those whole and then sending them to us to excavate. Um, Right. Okay. Because they were smaller and easy to move. And also because, you know, children and infants are really, really time consuming to excavate. So it made more sense for them to send them to us to do rather than trying to do them on site when they were under such like, you know, they were still under time pressure. Right. And it was still unpleasant, an unpleasant working environment for them in terms of kind of the relationship with the development company that really did not want any of this to be happening. Yeah. Um, It seems like a pretty pretty bad vibe. What's that? Seems like a pretty bad vibe like there with the, the developers. Yeah, it, it was really bad. Um, yeah, it was bad. Um, so yeah, so our team did, a, did excavated all of these infant and child coffins. So because we saw so many of them and just got kind of, you know, boxes of pre-excavated adults, it feels like we excavated so many babies and children. Um, but still, yeah, I mean, we had one infant whose um, hand was mummified and like p- perfectly preserved. Like, so you ooh. could see, you know, you could what? see this, this little baby's hand and it oh. was really, I don't want to say ooh. heartbreaking, but it really, you yeah. know, emotional dimension to what we were doing. Buh. Yeah. It would definitely be evocative that mm-hmm. of course it's, it would a, be. it's a reminder of there being like an actual human they, they child. Had, they were, yeah. And, and they were, the thing, they left people behind. Yeah. And we really made it a point throughout this project, throughout all the many, many, many students that have rotated in and out of the project to really emphasize the kind of humanity behind what we're doing, that all these people are people and that they all have stories and they all have lives and none of them wanted to be dug up in this way. Yeah. <laughs> so it's our duty to kind of learn as much as we can about them, treat them as respectfully as possible, um, do the best science for their sake, and then make sure that they are, um, that they are reinterred. Yeah. 
is that kind of what you see as the role in general of forensic archaeology? And is there is there more to that of what what forensic archaeologists can and should do? Yeah, I mean, so typically forensic archaeologists are working on homicide cases or missing persons cases. You know, there's there's got to be some sort of court case at the end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's no if there's no court case, and really it's just bioarchaeology essentially that we're doing. Um, but I do think because forensic archaeology, you are dealing with victims of crime. You're dealing with the families of victims of a crime. There's inevitably a humanitarian aspect to the work that a forensic archaeologist is going to do, um, and it's really important, you know, because your work provides closure for so many people. Um, as well as justice, it's really important to always kind of keep that in the forefront of your mind, um, that you're really doing this for, for families and for the individuals themselves. Yeah. 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 And, um, so what, um, in your mind is the sort of the end goal of the Arch Street Project and, and like, what will a successful conclusion to the project be and what's going to happen to the remains they're getting they're getting reinterred right like yes. for everyone everyone will go to uh, mount mariah yeah so. yeah and i mean part of that's really hard <laughs> to kind of let all that material go because you know we we know that it's any of us that teach at colleges we know that we just don't have nearly enough bones to teach our students with to make them good bioanthropologist, bioarchaeologist, whatever, but that's always, you know, you can get bone clones, but it's just not quite the same. Nope. So, yeah. So it's hard to have like all this wonderful material um, because we have so many, we have so many interesting things represented from taphonomy to pathology to, you know, the pipe tooth, all these different things that you read about. And we actually have the ability to see it firsthand. So it, it kind of hurts a little bit inside to be like, okay, I'm just going to put it all back in the ground. Um, but you know, again, that's the right thing to do because these, these folks did not want to be dug up certainly in the manner in which they were dug up. Um, and so that's, that's what we need to do. So what would be a successful archery project is for us to really get all the information we can possibly get from this assemblage before it goes back in the ground. And if possible, to even be able to get some high quality digital scans of some mm-hmm. of the more remarkable yeah. individuals. Yeah. So that yeah. we could have um, learning material after the fact. Everything comes down to money. I mean, this, this project is completely crowdfunded. Um, we've tried to get some external sources of funding and we're still trying to get external sources of funding, but success rates for a lot of the federal grants are so low. Um, and one of the problems is that these individuals don't have names. We don't, we can't say that apart from Benjamin Britten, we can't actually name a person and look up their record and their, you know, demographic profile and that kind of stuff. And for a lot of the projects that do get um, federal funding, they've got all that information. So then you can use that assemblage to answer some kind of big overarching bioanthropological question, which is right. what funding agencies want you to do. And we, we are really limited as to, as to what kind of questions we can answer, um, with this particular assemblage, just who they are and what they can tell us isn't good enough. Yeah. And so, you know, you're trying to do what you were saying with forensic archaeology of this kind of um, finding justice and closure and, and, and sort of doing right by um, 
victims and their families. So in this case, you're just, it seems like you're trying to do right by this community that didn't ask to be dug up so that a, a parking garage could go in and that you're like, and you, and it seems that is it to my mind. Now I'm not a funding agency, but that, you know, that is a noble pursuit and, and what you can learn from, um, these remains that, that you're excavating sort of incidentally, just by, by, by after finding them. Just and, and because we them. can learn. Yeah, because, because we, we can, can learn. learn. And that sort of is a, something that can, um, I don't, I, I don't know if, if like, uh, this is getting like too existential, but it's sort of like, if, if you're getting, if, if they have to go through this, if the, these people who were laid to rest have to go through being disturbed and then ultimately reinterred, um, this perhaps may sort of, there's something good that can come of it is by, by helping us learn, um, helping inspire, um, your students who are learning like firsthand, like the humanity of the people behind the remains you study and, and maybe going on to, um, work on similar projects in the future. Like that's something that um, I, I think that that's very much in line with, with how you described forensic archaeology and in terms of it being part of the legal system and part of the pursuit of justice. Right. Yeah. I mean, we've said all historical along, justice. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we've said all along that like our goal is just to bring as much good out of what is was a terrible situation. Yeah. Um, but sadly, the NSF doesn't fund that. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. No, no. So, I mean, some of, weird. some of the things that we've been looking at is, um, can you tell through the skeletal record the transition from immigrant to native born? Because that's kind of what we have here. Is we have a population that started off as immigrants from principally England, a few from Wales as well. And then over the generations, they transitioned uh, from being immigrants to being native-born Americans. So in terms of mm-hmm. their lifestyles, in terms of their nutritional inputs, right. um, in mm-hmm. terms of other environmental factors that might be um, affecting them um, physically. Um, so that's uh, that's one thing that we've been trying to pitch as our as our angle in terms of getting. Um, federal funding at least. Um, but what's kind of holding us up is, um, we, we want to get a better idea of our demographics. Also, another thing that's kind of holding us up is according to the historic record, it doesn't look like we have that many kind of multiple generation families. So we might not even be able to do what we think we can do if we find that we don't actually have a family that has stayed in the church from immigration and onwards. Okay. So you would, you would want to see, um, generationally being like specifically like a grandparent, parent and child, not That's generationally right. in terms of people born in the like sort of first generation as sort of a category versus second generation. Like, well, yeah, because okay. that first generation born in the U S may look different, you know, physically than the generation that was born outside of the U S right. again, because they had different stressors. They had different nutritional inputs and, you know, other things that could be impacting them in terms of their growth and development and that sort of stuff. And so you would want to see that um, those generations within your data set 
Yes. Not yes. not just knowing from record. It's like, oh, this guy was born in in what is now the U.S. Uh, and, but we know that he was born of parents. Like, so you would, you couldn't compare like um, a, a data point of someone who is native born versus another data point of someone else unrelated who mm-hmm. was was immigrant. You would need to see that sort of longitudinally through. Um, generations. I'm just trying related, to related people. Yeah, I'm just trying to like understand this fully. So you would need those, like that is something that, that is um, a hurdle in your in your data set. Is that it's it's hard to tell. Yeah, it would be better to be able to track a certain family from okay. a, a, from their movement from uh, being born abroad to being born in the U.S. I mean, yeah, as you say, you could probably do that um, across unrelated groups as well, um, and may, you know, maybe be able to tie some things in, in that way, if you knew where somebody's family originated from. Um, but it would be most helpful to have kind of a continuum okay. of, of a you know gene pool, let's say. Right. Um, so, so funding like that would enable us to do things like stable isotopes, uh, to be able to do DNA, to actually start um, identifying who's related to who. Yeah. Because yeah. DNA is super expensive. DNA is really like, would be a gold mine in terms of our research, but it's super duper expensive. And that's really where the federal funding, you know, needs to come in. Okay. Um, so that would be, you know, that, that would be a big, for me, a big measure of success if we were able to get the funding to do things like DNA and stabilized topes. Well, we don't know if being on this mildly successful podcast will help, <laughs> but we hope it does. Um, so if, someone, say a listener to this mildly successful podcast, were interested in becoming a forensic archaeologist or a bioarchaeologist, mm-hmm. um, what would your advice be for, for where they should start out? What kind of experience or education should they should they try and get? Well, I can really only speak to being a forensic archaeologist. <laughs> right. Yes. So um, definitely you have to be an archaeologist first for any type of forensic field. You've got to be that scientist first, a biologist first, a chemist first, an archaeologist first. Um, All the forensic sciences is using your skill set in a particular context. So Mm -hmm. for archaeology, you know, understanding how our excavation techniques um, search and recovery, documentation, and interpretation, how that works in a crime scene sort of sphere. And really, you know, in many ways, a forensic archaeologist is a crime scene investigator. And really, police departments should be hiring archaeologists as their crime scene investigators, because everything that you would want your crime scene investigator to do is what we do every day as archaeologists yeah. in terms of having a methodical processing, um, identifying material of human activity, documenting that material, recovering that material, and then providing an interpretation and a reconstruction. So be an archaeologist first, uh, do field work so that you know how to do all those things. <laughs> right. And then um, what really then makes you a forensic archaeologist is then understanding the constraints you have to work in within the legal system. So understanding things like police policies yeah. and procedures and paperwork, chain of custody, um, how an archaeological report for a prosecutor would be very different than an academic archaeological report. Yeah, um, to, that makes sense. That makes yeah. sense. Testify, how to talk to a jury, a basic kind of forensic awareness, because as the archaeologist slash crime scene investigator, you're responsible for recovering items that are going to be analyzed by other people downstream. So understanding 
what are the different types of evidence, how they need to be packaged, how they need to be preserved. Um, if you're sampling maggots or soil or botanical material, how to, how to sample, what to sample, again, how to package and preserve those samples. Um, really good idea to see a dead body before you do this work. <laughs> yeah, probably before you decide that that's your career, yeah. I guess. So go to an autopsy, make sure that this, this is something you want to do. Cause you know, very, very rarely, um, as a forensic archaeologist, are you actually dealing with skeletal remains? It's almost always very fresh individuals or partially decomposed individuals. It's only if they find like some bones in the woods that you might be dealing with both. Right. Yeah. And um, it, it's interesting to learn anyway, but like even more interesting to learn with uh, against the backdrop of you talking about your trajectory and what you thought forensic archaeology was going to be versus what it very much is. Um mm -hmm. And, and so has being a forensic archaeologist changed the way you think about things like death and, and disease? Um, you know, when you talk about the, the infant burial with the, the mummified hand and, and things like that, those sort of, does, does that change how you even think about death and life itself? Like, and, and if so, how? Uh, Are we all going to have an existential I, crisis? I, 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 yes, I have probably. been having like a slow one through this whole thing, um, but <laughs> but I just find this this so fat. Like the people who who confront, like the the you know as it were like the eaten bones of your work is is is, is bones is bones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess um, death has now become for me not just a singular topic. It's now very much broken into the science of death which is what I really deal with all the time and with, and which is what I actually find kind of, I hate to say exciting. I'm excited about death. I kind of am. Um, I find, I find the, the biological processes that are involved in death really interesting. I mean, one of my areas of research mm -hmm. is taphonomy and those are all the changes that happen to a biological assemblage after death. So I really like, yeah. I would have never been exposed to the science of death had I not gone in this direction in my career. Um, but I also now see death very much through an anthropologist lens in terms of all the rituals and practices that we have associated with death. I never, you know, before going into forensic science, I never realized how all of those practices are all about the living and not mm -hmm. actually have anything to do with the dead. And maybe that's why I have a greater appreciation of the hum the humanity behind death. Yeah. So, yeah. And, you know, I've always kind of probably had more of the scientist mind than the, you know, humanities or social scientist mind. Um, so it, it hasn't made me change my view about death in the sense that I've, I've been kind of always, I hate to say cold and unfeeling about death, but death has never been a thing that's really that I've had an emotional connection to. Um, but doing this work, it's forced me to kind of go against my nature, to see that humanity, to realize that my actions, actions impact many people who are alive. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Probably if somebody had talked to me 15 years ago about the Art Street Project, I would just be super excited about the bones. But now, as I've kind of been involved in forensic work for a bit longer and I've interacted with more families and victims of crime and so forth, I now see all the bones of the Art Street Project through a very different lens. And I really see how you know, how necessary it is to treat them with the le level of respect that, you know, we, we aim to do. Yeah. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. <laughs> no, it does. Thank you. Yeah, it does. Yeah, so that's Perfect. a beautiful answer. Yeah. So 
our last two questions are sort of our through line that we ask we ask every guest that that comes on the dirt. So, first of all, what is your favorite thing about either anthropology or archaeology? Definitely 100% the multidisciplinary nature of archaeology. That's what drew me to archaeology in the first place is that you can take anything and turn it into archaeology. Um, and I think that's totally. why I fit so well in forensic science. It's the same way. You can take anything and turn it into forensic science. So that's what I, that's what I love. And this one's more kind of a little bit more goofy or fun. So if you could have been present for a single moment in time, either for an archaeological discovery or just to see something that would answer a question for you from history or prehistory, what would you want to see? Uh, Pompeii and Herculaneum. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> You had that one ready before I, well, oh, I saw that question in your email. <laughs> and I, for a minute, I was like, huh, I really don't know. And then of course the whole death and destruction thing po- sprang to mind. So and, yeah, 79, you want to be there. I would have loved to have been involved in those excavations. I mean, how, oh, how cool. Oh, I thought you oh the discovery. I thought you meant I don't want to see like them all die. 79 no. <laughs> CE. Yeah. I was just like, okay. <laughs> no, yeah, she's wow. That. I was on board. No. You're like, Yes, that's adventure tourism. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I would have loved to have been involved in those excavations to see kind of a moment in time, you know, frozen in time. Yeah. Um, that must have been really yes. amazing. Did you have you seen the there's a news story that's been bopping around my my Facebook yes, feed, etc. of the Pliny. The, no, that one, too. But also Pliny's Pliny the Elder's skull. Oh, that no, I didn't they, see that. They, oh, it's driving me crazy. Uh, it's basically the the evidence is we found a skull of a probable male, probable age when Pliny the Elder died. So it's Pliny the Elder. We found oh. him. Yeah, it's well, a real you bummer. Can't say it's not. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly their their reasoning. They're just like, well, it's not not Pliny. So, but, but, yeah. Yeah, but I also did see the the brain about, glass. Yeah, the, yeah. the glass. Glass brains, the glass, glass brains. brains. Yeah, yeah. Now, I I haven't. That was another one where I just sort of read the title and rolled my eyes and walked away. But uh, I don't. Is brain something something that can be vitrified? Well, <laughs> it doesn't I, have to contain I, silica. Well, so I'm so glad the topic of brains came up because oh, thank God. Oh yeah, let's I talk about to, brains. I have to bring this back around to the archery project again because please, one please of the do. really great things about this about our group is that we oh, have so brains? many preserved brains you found brains and i mean they like they look like brains kind of like stop it down, but like it it is so a brain ew <laughs> but also ew <laughs> oh man uh, and I mean, uh. again this i guess is maybe one of the making a making something good out of a bad situation the only reason why we have those brains is because of the destruction caused by the backhoe um breaking skulls open um, otherwise, we wouldn't, you know, we might be able to hear it rattling around, but we wouldn't actually physically have it. Um, oh, so, but since they already did the breaking. So yeah, um, so this has turned into additional research. So I, I'm working with a neurobiologist who is going to, you know, impregnate some of our, our nicer morphology brains with resin and thin section oh, them yeah, can, and actually yeah, put them can. under the microscope to see what sort of things have been preserved on a cellular level. Cool. Um, oh and God. then we're working with somebody in Tennessee at Lincoln Memorial uh, University who looks at, at um, she does lipidomics, which has to do with lipids mm-hmm. biomarkers. And okay. uh, yeah. we're, we're recovering lipids from these brains that can maybe tell us things like um, states of disease, 
Um, something that we're toying with is, could you tell if a woman was pregnant or in childbirth because lipids are hormones and you're going to have different hormone right. profiles if oh. you're with child giving birth or whatever. So could we see if some of our women died in childbirth? Um, oh. So there's all wow. kinds of really new stuff that would have never happened if we didn't have a backhoe break somebody's head open. Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't know how you don't have your federal grant applications that are just like, yes. That's it. We got brains. brains. We got some. <laughs> like, that's amazing. We want to look at them. Yeah, yeah that's incredible. We um, should be much more on board with brains because that is blowing my mind. That's inc- <laughs> I mean, terrible that that happened, but that is absolutely incredible that that's not something that I would think that would be would be preserved and would be preserved no. to a degree that it can be examined in the ways that you just described. I guess it's in a perfect little hermetically sealed container, really. Well, so again, this is the power of social media at play. Um, So we put a picture of one of our brains out on, I think, our Instagram account because (laughs) we're like, hey, we got brains. We don't know what to do with them or even why we got them in the first place. You know, anyone want to get in touch? And so um, somebody from um, the University of Bradford reached out and I happened to actually be in the UK. So I was able to meet with her and she was like, Actually, brains are preserved all the time. People think it's this rare occasion, but it really happens a lot in archaeology. And so that's that's a, you know, I'm based in the chemistry department. So I'm looking to work with some of my chemists to kind of understand what's the mechanism at the root of the preservation. Could it possibly be something like adipocere? So adipocere takes adipose tissue, takes your fat and through chemical, you know, transformations, it turns it into a natural kind of mummification. If anyone's ever heard of the soap lady, um, that's adipocere. Um, so, you know, lipids aren't fat tissue or aren't fat cells, but they are, you know, fatty in nature. So could it be a, this, a similar kind of chemical reaction that is causing brain preservation? And, um, we need to find out, we need to see if we can kind of, you know, break this down chemically to see what's going on. So it's something that is known that it's like, yes, we know it, but like or your, the colleague at Bradford at least was like, yes, this happens a lot, but we don't know why we're just, yeah. we're yeah. just like, and, and nobody's really publishing about it. So what we need someone to do, probably not me, cause I don't really have the time <laughs> is we need someone to put together a nice review article that pulls out all the instances where people are reporting preserved brains in their like archaeological site reports and stuff like that, or in the academic literature yeah. to really show that it is, it is a common occurrence. Wow. Wow. Huh. That, well, that is incredible. I don't even care about glass brains anymore. Yeah. <laughs> we, we got, we got, we're lousy with brains and we didn't even we are yeah. Oh, speaking brains. of, we're, we're potentially missing a great, a great resource here. Yeah. So speaking of your social media, if people were were to want to follow you on Instagram um, and see pictures of brains and other things, where, where could they do that? It's at Arch Street Project. So kind of all spelled out, Arch Street Project. Um, okay. Twitter, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, and we pretty much cross post across all of those platforms. Um, but yeah, that's a great way to follow kind of what's happening. And our website, um, we do occasionally post blogs on research projects that are going on. So yeah, um, that's a good way so to cool. see past and present. Yeah, it's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, awesome. Yeah, and we'll be sure to like tag and share all of that out. And then also yeah. um, for 
I mean, it would be amazing if this this were able to come through for you guys. But is is there a way that um, if we have listeners who are parts of organizations or individuals who want to support the work that you're doing um, and want to support what's happening with the Arch Street Project, is that something that um, could someone just kind of PayPal you? Yeah, if yeah, you're talking, yeah. You're talking about like crowdfunding for, for brains. That, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. On our website, there's a donate now button. Um, and, um, all the research funding goes through the Mütter Research Institute, which, which is part of the Mütter Museum, which is part yeah. of the, um, College of Physicians of Philadelphia. So, um, we've crowdfunded, I think around two or $3,000 so far. Um, almost all of our work is done by volunteers, all of the principal investigators, you know, we do this kind of in our spare time. Right. Um, but if there are research projects that people are interested in as well, we're very happy to collaborate. We've collaborated with uh, a number of institutions here in the U.S. and a few abroad as well, um, particularly things around like DNA, um, high resolution uh, scanning, 3D scanning. You know, we realize that people don't have the resources to do DNA for like 500 samples. But if they had the resources for a few samples, then we could like prioritize which ones that we would right. that we would want done. Things like that. So, yeah, donations. Great donations in kind. Sure. All that stuff is wonderful. All right. Well, thank you so much. This this was so cool. Yeah, I'm so jazzed. Now. I was I was it's excited. Like, we didn't know what to expect, but and then with, and then the conversation happened. I'm like, I am a different person than I was an hour ago. I think like, this was great. <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah, well, thank, thank you, you so very much, much for having me. Thank you again so much to Kimberly Moran for talking with us and to Amanda for sponsoring the episode. If you're interested in the Arch Street Project and want to learn more about what they do, their webpage is on our show notes. If you want to find us on the internet, you can do that on Twitter. We're at Dirt Podcast. On Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. On Facebook, we are at The Dirt Podcast. And all of that is together on our website, thedirtpod.com. And if you want to email us and ask questions or give us your thoughts. You can do that at the dirt podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. We love you. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Chris Webster here. Thanks for listening and sharing this episode across your socials. It really helps us get the word out. If you don't know how to share from your podcast app, just look for a share icon on Apple devices. It's usually a box with a little arrow coming out of it, something like that, and share it across your socials right from in the app. If you'd like to support us a little more and get some extras in the process, then head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for some options. That's arcpodnet.com slash members to support archaeological education and outreach.